Father, to you we bring, we bring praise for all that you have done. We thank you for the lives that you have touched, for your faithfulness to us. We thank you especially for your blessing through the week of finals at the college and the baccalaureate and commencement services and the many different uh, open houses and so forth that were held for the graduates. We're just really grateful that you superintended it all. And uh, even though we don't uh, quite understand why uh, the rains came, we know that in it all you have an ultimate plan. And we trust that that will be brought to fruition. And Lord, we do trust that next year we will have our own facility where mm -hmm. this will not be a problem at all and uh, that you will be able to uh, guide us through this and provide, and we trust you for that. And now, Father, as we take these moments this morning to focus on the life of Moses, on some of the background information, Lord, guide us and uh, fill us with understanding and, and give us hearts to desire to know you better. And uh, Father, we ask that your uh, special touch will be upon each one here in this class and throughout our Sunday school this morning as uh, there are many uh, teaching and uh, trusting for, the God, for God's blessing, we know that, uh, that that will be there as your spirit is present with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. On your outline, you see at the top, Moses, Prince of Egypt, Shepherd of Midian, Prophet of God. And those three little phrases each represent approximately a third of Moses' life, about a 40-year period. It was about 40 when he was uh, forced to leave Egypt. He spent about 40 years on the backside of the desert, as it were, and he spent about 40 years as God's prophet, leading Israel uh, out of Egypt, through the wilderness, and to the gateway of Canaan. And so as we uh, work through the life of Moses, those will be the three major periods we look at. We'll spend, of course, by far the bulk of the time looking at Moses as the prophet of God, just very briefly as far as being a shepherd in Midian. But, you know, it, it's, it's really, to me, very interesting. I thought about this many times, and I'm sure many of you have too. We live very hectic, rushed lives that seem to be constantly full of things all the time. And yet, you think about Moses spent 40 years chasing sheep through the wilderness. No radios, no television, <laughs> you know. No, nobody putting any demands on him, just sheep. And sheep have relatively limited needs. <laughs> and yet God was with him. It was a formative period in his life. It was a necessary period. And I think many of us, especially sometimes when people come to know the Lord after they've become somebody prominent, it seems like they never spend the 40 years, as it were, out in the desert. <laughs> It's kind of like they move from having been a, a notorious evil person, bam, they're made a saint of God, and wham, they're put on the circuit to, on television, radio, and everywhere, and they never go through that period where God is able to make them into children of His in, in the deep sense of the word, disciples. And, and we look at their lives, and sometimes what follows is tragedy. I think in the life of Moses, uh, we see something of principles that are, are very important. And these principles will be drawn out, of course, as we go through the scripture. But I, I think in just the general sense of, of looking at the life of Moses, that 40-year period, although the scripture says very little about it, 
was a very, very important period in his life. And uh, sometimes we need periods like that to kind of, like, like Paul spent three years in, in the desert uh, being taught of God. And sometimes we don't get that before we're rushed off into things for, what, for which we're not spiritually prepared. So sometimes if we're kind of kicked onto the back burner for a while and, and we don't understand the reason, hey, maybe God wants us in the wilderness of Sinai for a little while. I'd like to, this morning, begin by looking at, a, to me, a, a really powerful passage. It's a transition passage. It's transition between Genesis and Exodus, if you will, and, and a little bit beyond, maybe, but a passage which gives us insight into God's view of this whole study that we've had through the book of Genesis over the past three and a half years. And now as we go into the shorter study of the life of Moses, just, just so you'll be encouraged, it won't take, won't take three and a half years to move through the life of Moses. But it will take a while, so don't plan on it being over by, you know, the end of the summer or something. So I'd like to, this morning, read through Psalm 105. We have to, just as a preface, think about the fact that the psalmist was a man whose heart and mind was touched by God. The, the history that's recounted here certainly was known by the psalmist and was known by virtually every Israeli youth. But to have the insight to understand it from what seems to be God's perspective can only come from God himself. And that's why a belief in the inspiration of Scripture that we hold in our hands what God has said and what he not only spoke to the psalmist or to whomever the writer was, but what he is saying to us individually today. We have to have that belief, or to me, the, the rest of it just doesn't hang together. We might as well just hang up our cleats, as it were, and, and be a Buddhist or something if we don't want to believe in the divine inspiration of the Word of God. Psalm 105, beginning at verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Notice how that starts. Give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds. What do we have this book for? It's to make known his deeds. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. Glory in his name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his face when you feel like it. Right? No. Seek his face continually. I think sometimes that's when we hit unintentional dry spots in our lives. That, that is, spots that God has not intended for us to go to. It's because we haven't been persistent in seeking his face. Remember his wonders which he has done his marvels, and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant. O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. All the earth. Now, it doesn't matter if, if they're worshiping Allah over there or, or Buddha over here or whatever. God's judgments are there too. And they will be judged according to this word. 
He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac. Then he confirmed it to Jacob for a statute and to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion of your inheritance. When they were only a few men in number, very few, and strangers in it, and they wandered about from nation to nation, from one nation to another people. He permitted no man to oppress them, and he reproved kings for their sakes. Do not touch my anointed ones, and do not harm, and do my prophets no harm. And he called for a famine upon the land, and he broke the whole staff of bread. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters, and he himself was laid in irons. Until the time that his word came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him, refined him. The king sent and released him, the rulers of the peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler over all his possessions, to imprison his princes at will, that he might teach his elders wisdom. Israel, that is Jacob, also came to Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he caused his people to be very fruitful. He made them stronger than their adversaries, and that's what we'll be reading about when we come to the very first verses of the book of Exodus. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his wondrous acts among them, miracles in the land of Ham, he sent darkness and made it dark, and they did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. The land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came a swarm of flies and gnats in all their territory. And he gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck down their vines also and their fig trees and shattered the trees of their territory. He spoke, and the locusts came out and young locusts, even without number, and ate up all vegetation in their land, and ate up the fruit of their ground. He also struck down the firstborn in their land, the firstfruits of all their vigor. Then he brought them out with silver and gold, and among his tribes there was not one who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them had fallen upon them. He spread a cloud for a covering, covering, and a fire to illumine by night. They asked, and he brought quail, satisfied them with the bread of heaven. He opened the rock, and water flowed out. It ran in dry places like a river. For he remembered his holy word with Abraham his servant, and he brought forth his people with joy, his chosen ones with a joyful shout. And he gave them into the lands of the nations that they might take possession, the fruit of the people's labor. <laughs> they went into Canaan. It was a turnkey country. Crops were planted, orchards were in, vineyards were in. They just walked in and took over so that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. We ever wonder whether God has a hand on the course of history? Do we think sometimes that maybe God doesn't know what's going on down here and he has to look at CNN to figure it out? I'm sure we don't think that way, but, you know, every once in a while, little doubts come into our mind. How in the world could this happen? 
how, how could God allow children to be destroyed by, by somebody who's got this vendetta going and blows the front off a building and, and kills a hundred and some odd people? We, we could say, God, where are you in all this? As we read through this, we see God is there, God knows, God superintends, God is directing. And, and we have to know that these tragedies are tragedies in God's eyes too, in the sense that it's painful to Him. But it has to happen for sin to really be seen as sin. And of course, as a product of a country whose heart has grown cold and whose ways are divergent from the ways of God. And hopefully it's going to drive the church in America back to Him. Going to awaken a kind of a cold church and bring about restoration of belief in the Word of God. I think it all hangs ultimately on whether we believe this is really the Word of God and not just the Word of men, not just nice poetry or nice stories that God may use from time to time, but believe this is actually God's Word to His people. And somehow He has superintended this work, and although it's been translated into hundreds of thousands of languages, it's been translated in truth, and we can believe it, and we can put our foundation on this Word, and the, wor the world can say what it will, and it can try to prove what it will, and it can demonstrate what it will, but we will believe this truth in the face of all supposed evidences that might seem to indicate something different. I think if we don't have that foundation, then we don't have really anything to stand on. And we'll be shaken about as, you know, wind, in, in the winds of change, and our lives will not be effective, nor hopeful. So as we begin a study which is going to focus at first, of course, on Exodus, but as time passes, we'll be interweaving uh, Leviticus and uh, Deuteronomy into the Exodus numbers chronology. I trust we'll recognize that even though sometimes you read through the book of Leviticus, and we aren't going to be studying Leviticus verse by verse, but we're going to be looking at you know, those salient uh, points that come in there, that, that even though sometimes we read through that, we say, whoa, you know, <laughs> this doesn't relate to me. We'll understand it's the Word of God. And it spoke to Israel 3,500 years ago, and, and it had meaning to them. And, and by extension and by example, it has meaning to us too. And, and hopefully that will be our guiding light as we move along. I'd like to begin with a little bit of background concerning Egypt. We've talked about Egypt uh, briefly before. Egypt's a fascinating land, and I think I mentioned to you oh, several months ago that when we were in Egypt that we, the lady who was a government representative, he was taking our group around, asked where we'd been, and we'd send, said we had been in um, Israel, and that we'd been in Israel for three weeks, and we were going to be in Egypt for something like five days, and she just couldn't grasp that. <laughs> Israel for three weeks and Egypt for five days. She said, don't you know that Egypt is also a holy land? E Egypt has a long and fascinating history, but Egypt is not a holy land. <laughs> From its earliest times, it's been a very unholy land. Although, according to the prophecies that you read, and certainly uh, 
Paul probably has, has brought some of these in in, in, in the uh, studies that have been going on on Sunday night. The day seems to be coming when uh, God says there will be a path from Egypt to Syria, Assyria, and that my people Egypt and my people Assyria will join forces with my people Israel. It's hard for us to grasp today. Uh, there are hardly any greater enemies uh, in, in history, historically at least, than uh, the Arabic peoples on the two sides of Israel today. But nevertheless, God, God is at work. God called Abraham out of a city called Ur. Now, Ur was the capital and, and most prominent city of a kingdom known as the Third Dynasty of Ur. And it was located in southern Mesopotamia, and its ruins have been archaeologically probed for over a century now. Ur was, at, was close to the center of the oldest known human civilization, and, and I'm talking about civilization in the sense of uh, advanced civilization. Highly organized human societies existed in southern Mesopotamia uh, at least as early as 4000 BC. And from there, they seem to have migrated out both to the east and to the west. Now, human civilization in the valley of the Nile is only slightly younger than that of the valley of the Tigris-Euphrates. And I, I would not be surprised if someday they discovered that there was almost no difference in the time frame between the growth and development of civilization in uh, what was ancient Sumer as well as uh, ancient Egypt. The archaeological evidences that have been uncovered in Egypt indicate that uh, Egypt was an important center of advanced society at least as early as 3800 BC. You know, when you're talking about 3 to 4000 BC, to try to define between 3800 and 4000 is a little tricky. In fact, many historians will admit once you get back before 500 BC, you have to start putting in significant plus minus factors when it comes to dates. And, and you could be talking about plus minus factors of half a century and the further back it becomes a century and, and so. The difference between ancient Mesopotamia and ancient Nile were probably really very, very small in terms of time. So Abraham, the father of the Hebrew nation, was called out of a highly sophisticated society. Now we have a tendency in our modern world, and this is really true amongst many modern historians and scholars of other fields, they kind of look at the ancients as primitive in their understanding of things, and that ancient historians really didn't have their act together, and probably didn't chronicle things very accurately, and, and therefore the moderns can kind of straighten it out. And that's always bothered me because to me there's, there's some kind of intellectual arrogance there. When you think about the fact that somebody who happened to live maybe within 100 years or 200 years in a, of an event can't know it as well as somebody who lives 5,000 years later. I, you know, there's just something about that that bothers me about it. And uh, I, I think that in the academic realm today, arrogance is one of the chief virtues that many have. And the society out of which Abraham came was, in its day, probably the highest level that existed, a very sophisticated urban society. 
And yet then his descendants, beginning with his grandson Jacob, migrated into the land of Egypt where they would spend over 400 years in an equally highly sophisticated society. And the reason I emphasize that is because there is a tendency sometimes amongst Christians as we study through the Bible to kind of think of the Israelis as, uh, you know, kind of shepherd country bumpkins who lived out on the fringe of society and, and thus were hicks, you know, to put it bluntly. And, and yet, as we study this, we, we discover that, uh, I mean, they came out of the most highly sophisticated society of the time. Uh, they spent 400 years in another highly sophisticated society. They were hardly ignorant of the best that human culture and civilization had to produce. So we're not talking about people who lived out in the backside of the desert, chased sheep all their lives, and, and didn't even know what human civilization was like. We're talking about sophisticated people. And of course, this is especially true as we're going to look at the life of Moses, because Moses was raised in the courts of Egypt and given the finest education that Egypt had to offer, and that was as good as you could find anywhere in the world at that time. Uh, so, so Moses was, was not some kind of a country hick. He was as brilliant as a person ever lived in the ancient world. And of course, this, this whole argument, you may never have heard it, but there was quite an argument went on, especially in the 19th and early part of the 20th century, that uh, Moses could not have written Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy because writing hadn't been invented by the day Moses lived. And of course, most historians today kind of laugh at that because we discover, of course, writing uh, significantly antedates the time of Moses. And uh, not only could Moses uh, have written, he could have written probably in more than one form and uh, probably was multilingual himself and very, very literate. And so there's no problem with his being able to write uh, the first five books. Uh, it didn't have to be a miracle where God's just taught him something he didn't even know how to do to start with. Uh, the miracle comes in the fact that we're reading God's inerrant word through a, <laughs> an errant person. And that's a miracle. By the time of the death of Joseph, and, and to me this is interesting because when you start putting things in perspective, uh, it, it's kind of awesome in, in many ways. Uh, by the time of the death of Joseph, the pyramids of Giza were already nearly a millennium old. You know, sometimes you almost like put Joseph back at the time when they built the pyramids. And maybe some uh, think that the Israelis built the pyramids. But the, the great pyramids, the three great pyramids at Giza, there near Cairo, actually within Cairo today, were old by the time Joseph came along. In fact, they had been around for twice the length of time that it's been since Columbus discovered America. And we think of that as, whew, man, antiquity, way back there. It's kind of interesting, I think, that the Pyramid Age was could have been taught as ancient history to Ephraim and Manasseh. Whoa, you know, those ancients that built this must have been wondrous people. Certainly because of the many Old Testament and New Testament contacts with Egypt, the land of Egypt was very, very important in, in biblical history. 
And the name appears actually 675 times in the Old Testament. Now the Hebrew name, and I've put it on there, the Hebrew name for Egypt, or the name for Egypt in Hebrew was Mitzrayim. And that name first appears in the 10th chapter of Genesis. We, we won't turn to it, but in the 10th chapter of the book of Genesis in verse 6, it tells us that Ham, Ham, if you remember, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, that Ham had four sons, and those sons were Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. And all four of those names became names of ancient lands. Mitzrayim was believed to be the father of the Egyptian nation. Now, we have a tendency sometimes, maybe not we, but people in general often have a tendency to lump Egyptians with all Arabs. But Egyptians, if, if the person's a true Egyptian, he is not an Arab. Arabs are the people that live in what we call Saudi Arabia. And Arabic culture has spread, and Arabic religion has spread, and Arabic language has spread, and in Egypt they, they adhere to the Muslim faith, uh, they speak the Arabic uh, language, but the people are not Arab, they're Egyptians. And, and when we think about that, uh, we, we, we tend to lump all these people together, and it'll create kind of this monolithic set, uh, situation without realizing that the Islamic world is very highly diverse, ethnically as well as physically. And Egyptians today, even, are referred to, even in the secular world, as Hamites. And their original language, that is before Arabic came, became the dominant language of Egypt, was called Hamitic, is called Hamitic. Where from? Because the Bible says that Mitzrayim was the son of Ham. Now, whatever scholars think about there ever really having been a Ham who was the son of Noah, who had been through a universal flood or not, they still use the term Hamitic and Hamite for the Egyptians, for the people of Sudan, for the people of Ethiopia, that whole group of people in through there. Now, the English word Egypt comes from the Greek word Egyptos, which I think I've put there, uh, C2, which then became the Latin word Egyptus, and that's, of course, where we directly get the name Egypt. But the Greek word apparently came from the Egyptian hieroglyphic Hakupta. Now, Hakupta was the ancient name for the city Memphis. And what's interesting when you look at that is the last character of the hieroglyph, Ta, P-T-A-H. Now, you might say, strange combination of letters. <laughs> means nothing to me. But it meant a lot to the ancient Egyptians because that was the name of one of their chief gods. That was the patron deity of the city of Memphis, Ta. When we went through Genesis, I handed out a handout all months ago on just kind of a brief summary of Egyptian religion. I, I, I didn't talk, I don't think, in there about Ta, but because Egyptian mythology is really hard to follow along, and it really evolved down through time and becomes very convoluted. And the ancestries of the various gods are different uh, depending on where you get the source. 
you know, the, the God of one area becomes transposed up here in another area and gets mixed in. And the, kind of, the gods kind of sometimes blend together. What does that tell us? <laughs> well, obviously it tells us that the gods are at least of human invention and at worst demonic. But Ta was reckon, reckoned by the city of Memphis as the creator god, and get this, who spoke the cosmos into existence. I have become thoroughly convinced through my limited studies of ancient history that the knowledge of the truth which was passed from Abraham, uh, let's go back further, from Adam, you know, to his children and to his grandchildren and then was passed by Noah to Shem, Ham, and Japheth and by them to their children, that that knowledge continued on. It got distorted as time passed, as oral tradition often does. Uh, that's why I don't believe Moses wrote the first five books out of just oral tradition. I'm not saying he had no oral tradition available to him. But he had to have, besides that, the, the direct leading of the Holy Spirit that it will come out accurately because there are things in the first five book, books of, of the Bible that nobody could have known by oral tradition because they, were, they came from the mind of God. Especially the first few verses, you know, there wasn't anybody around to say, oh, wow, look what God just did. You know, he created the continents and sprouted the trees. There's nobody here to see that. So what we have, I believe here, even in this, uh, the story of Thaw, is a carry down of human tradition of what really happened and of what was really told by Adam all the way down through time. And when Shem, Ham, and Japheth got off the boat and they scattered their different ways and the various nations arose out of them and, and they turned away from God and, and Nimrod came along and the whole crew, they carried these traditions on down. And, and I'm really absolutely convinced, as I, I think we talked about way back in the beginning of the study of Genesis, that the whole story, for example, of Atlantis is a real recollection of the, the flood that got distorted down through time and uh, localized in different places or, or just kind of nebulously understood. And yet it's, it's referenced back to the flood that really did take place. And, and I think you can trace many of these things down into the traditions, the mythologies of, of ancient people. So, Ta spoke the cosmos into existence. Well, call him Elohim and you got it right, you know. And make him the only God and, and don't have all these 500 other gods that the Egyptians had. And I'm just using 500 as a term. They had lots of them. And I don't think anybody's ever chronicled all the gods of, of ancient Egypt. According to Egyptian tradition, the first pharaoh who united Egypt, now Egypt started out as a bunch of little city-states all strung out along the river, and you can kind of see that uh, on the map. These are just a few of the towns. At, its, at one point, there were, f there were um, uh, 20 city-states south of Memphis and 20 city-states in the Delta North of Memphis, and these formed the, the more or less 40, they call them gnomes, N-O-M-E-S, uh, city-states of ancient Egypt. And they were ultimately unified into an upper Egypt, which is south of Memphis, and a lower Egypt, which is north of Memphis. 
and they were unified by Menes, M-E-N-E-S, who was a pharaoh who is semi-legendary, of course, who lived about 3000 B.C. And he is supposedly the very first pharaoh, the one who's probably invented the mitre that the Egyptians wore on their heads with the falcon and the cobra indicating the two symbols of upper and lower Egypt and in indicating the union of these two. Memphis served as the capital for Menes. In fact, Menes, according to Egyptian legend, Menes founded Memphis. And because it was, it was a beautiful city, apparently, in its original construction with great white walls, it was simply called White Wall. And then through time, the hieroglyph uh, with Ta's name in it became the hieroglyph for the city and uh, interpreted by the Greeks as Egyptos, by the Romans as Egyptus, and, and by us as, as Egypt. Now, for a country to be named for its capital city is not an unusual phenomenon. Babylon. Ancient Babylon was named for the city of Babylon. Akkad for the city of Akkad. And, and there are other examples, so that shouldn't be particularly strange to us. The Egyptians themselves apparently referred to their city uh, by the name Kemet, which I have put on there in C3. Kemet, which means black land. We live in black land. <laughs> Now that might sound a little strange to us as uh, the name of a country, but for them it was not strange at all. It was as obvious as the nose in the front of their face that that was what they should call their land because what it applies to is the fertile Nile Valley flowing down through an extremely desiccated region of North Africa. The surrounding land they called Desret, Red Land from whence we get the name desert today. And, and Redland is really what it's like. When I showed you some slides, I guess it was last Sunday, wasn't it? We looked at a few slides of Egypt and it, none of those illustrated it quite so well, but you can just about walk in, in just a few steps from the Redland to the Blackland even today in Egypt. I mean, the desert just comes right up to the fertile wetland. <laughs> and it, there's hardly any transition between the two at all. And it, it's, it's just very obvious. The land that was watered, the land that was cropped, that was the black land and all around was this hostile red land. And so the Nile just created a ribbon of life that ran right through the inhospitable Sahara Desert. Now the kingdom of ancient Egypt was generally comprised of the last six to seven hundred miles of the Nile as it flows down from the first cataract to the mouth at the Mediterranean Sea. From Cyrene, which is on your little map here, Cyrene's at the bottom there, from Cyrene to the Mediterranean. Or if you've read the book of Ezekiel lately, Ezekiel says from Cyrene to Migdal, which is really the same. Because you see, Migdal is way up here, almost at the Mediterranean, over on the right side of the delta up there. We don't know a lot about Migdal. The term Migdal simply means tower. Uh, so obviously it was a city with a tower of some sort uh, that was important uh, to the Egyptians, uh, probably to the Egyptians, but to the Israelis also, that they noted it. So from Cyrene to Migdal, that was Egypt. 
That was what they knew to be Egypt. Now there was a physical reason for that, as I've already said. At Cyrene was the first cataract of the Nile. You can sail up the Nile River just as pretty as you please for that first six to seven hundred miles and suddenly you face the first cataract, first fall in the river. And suddenly you just don't sail anymore. You've got to go around the fall and put your boat back in or carry your cargo around and, and then you can sail further up till you hit the second cataract and the third cataract and the fourth. I mean there are six cataracts as you go from Egypt into Sudan. The first cataract was a natural break of, of transportation and communication. It was just natural. You go up, well, first time it becomes difficult, obviously. I mean, you look at American history, and you go over to the East Coast particularly, you, you see it over there, you have what they call the fall line, where the Piedmont, the hills that come out of the Appalachians, meet the, the coastal plain. And right at that point, there's a break in transportation where you could, the ancient, day, ancient days, the uh, days of the colonies, you could sail up the river to the point where you hit the first major rapids and, and there you had a break in bulk. You took your cargo off and put it on wagons or whatever to, to transport. And so cities tended to grow up there and you have a whole string of cities like, you know, right, right along that point, that break in transportation. And so it was here. And, and so the city of Cyrene, for example, uh, was established there. Uh, later on it was known as Aswan. And today, of course, it's... Uh, I mean, what we have there is, is the High Aswan Dam. And we have a big lake that backs up behind that first cataract now, Lake Nasser, which penetrates 300 miles to the south, clear down into the country of Sudan. Uh, but that's been an important uh, point along the river ever since. Beads on a string. That's what you can almost visualize ancient Egypt. This is beads on a string. This community after community right down the river and you didn't have to go very far to the left or the right, east or the west, off the river, and, and you were out in the desert. There just wasn't any more Egypt. It's right there along the river. So you can imagine how easy it would be to tie it together if you could control the river, which, of course, is what Menes and his successors did. From the earliest recorded period, the population of the Nile Valley has been very, very dense, thickly populated valley. Now, part of the reason for that is the valley is not very wide. You get a little bit south of Thebes, which you see is about two-thirds of the way down there. Thebes was usually the capital of the uh, upper portion of Egypt. Upper meaning higher up the river, uh, not meaning north. And south of Thebes, the river valley narrows down to about three or four miles. But as you go north, you get up to Amarna and a little bit beyond there, it will widen out to as much as 15 miles. And of course, by the time you get to Cairo, it's, it's gone and you're in the delta. Of course, Cairo didn't exist in the ancient period. Cairo is only about a thousand years old. Uh, Cairo was formed by the Arabs themselves later on and has grown to become the largest city in all Africa uh, today, but didn't even exist in these ancient days. But it's very close to the site of Memphis. Actually, it's on the site of On. On or Heliopolis, the city of the sun, uh, which was very important in the life of Joseph because that's from whence he got his bride, if you remember, and or from whence he was given his bride, at least. And, but that city is uh, now under Cairo. For much of its length, until you get to the delta, the Nile River is bordered by rather high and steep cliffs. I mean, some places those cliffs are nearly vertical. 
you, you saw a little bit of it in the pictures if you were here last week. You could see something of the cliffs there. They were, they were high and, and they were very, very steep. And so they really walled in the valley. And, and there are places where those cliffs, between the level of the river and the top of the cliff, it's 1,800 feet. So I mean, we're not talking about just a little, you know, a hill up there. And so it, it really has hemmed in the civilization uh, along the Nile River. Now, historically, almost every square foot of that flat valley floor, as far as the river would reach at flood stage, was cultivated. I mean, they cultivated every little inch of it, except whatever was under the city or under the road or whatever. But everything else, they, they cultivated. Now, I've mentioned before that very little rain falls in Egypt. And uh, I don't know, did you notice that just this spring they had snow in Alexandria? And I, I forget what the thing, the statement was, but I mean, it was the first time in recorded memory that snow had fallen in Alexandria, Egypt. And I mentioned the, the sign, one of the signs we saw frequently there that it hardly ever rained was the fact that the leaves of the trees were all just covered with dirt. Dirt just sat on the leaves and they all had this kind of a brownish look, really not terribly attractive. You know, indicating rain never comes along, to, or rarely comes along to, to wash them off. Uh, since there's little rain, the key to agriculture has been the annual flooding of the Nile, which occurred normally like clockwork. They could count on it. In fact, many say that uh, one of the uh, origins of the development of the calendar was related to the priests studying the rise and fall of the Nile River. Now, the river would reach its lowest level about this time of the year, April to June. Along in the air, the river would fall to about its lowest level. And, and then the big storms would come in Ethiopia. And the water would come pouring out of the Ethiopian highlands. It would flood down into the Nile River. And the waters would begin to rise. And about mid-August, the river would begin to max out. Mid-August to mid-September, the river would reach its highest flood stage. And there it would just wash right out of its normal banks all over the flat floodplain of the valley there. Typically, the river would rise as much as 25 vertical feet from its low level to its high level. And as it would do so, it, of course, would flood most of the valley floor. Over the centuries, the Egyptians, not dumb at all, built dikes. They diked off their pieces of land. And when the river started to flood, flood and the water started to reach up there, they opened the dike and they let the water flood into their field. And they would leave it flood into their field until the river topped out. And when the river topped out, they'd go back out there and close off the dike so that the water sat on their fields and didn't roll back into the river to go out to the Mediterranean as the river fell. And as they let the river water sit there, it did two things. It percolated into the ground, moistened the ground to several feet in depth. But not only that, the, the, the river, of course, carries a lot of sediment as it washes down out of the mountains. And uh, that sediment, as the water became still, would begin to percolate out and would fall and form the topsoil on the fields there. And so what the Egyptians had was annual rejuvenation of the soil, natural fertilization. They didn't have to apply anything to the soil. It naturally fertilized itself with new silt washed down every year. 
Since 3000 BC, some estimate 10 feet of silt has fallen out over the whole valley floor through these methods. It's not happening today, of course, as you know, because of the High Aswan Dam. All the silts falling in the, in the lake, <laughs> Lake Nasser. Problems would develop, of course, when the floodwaters were, went beyond the normal 25-foot level. And when they came down here at a high rate and a higher level, they would wash out the dikes, they would wash out the Egyptians' mud brick homes and create havoc. And then they had the other extreme was, as we read in the 41st chapter of Genesis, there was no flooding. The rains apparently failed, failed in Ethiopia and the river never rose at all. And there was no flooding, no rejuvenation, no watering of the soil, and as a result, no crops and famine would set in. It's part of the curse, as I trust you would all recognize. God did not intend humans to have to live this way. But because of the curse, what we call Mother Nature, doesn't act uh, very uh, consistently. And sometimes she will become very erratic and blow it all out. <laughs> and other times she just won't give anything at all. I mean, there is no Mother Nature, but I mean, you know, that's the way... Uh, we could view it. Now, the crops would be sown in the wet soil. Just go out there and, wow, got all this wet soil. Sow the crops in there, which they would do in October and November. And then the harvest would come between January and April, depending on the crop that was put into the ground. Principal crops were emmer, which is a form of wheat, and barley. And, and those are the pictures you get when we studied in the life of Joseph. And, you know, we saw the the, what the, old, the King James Version calls the corn, you know, coming up and the fat corn eating the skinny corn, well, that was probably either emmer or barley that was actually being referred to there. But the Egyptians grew other things, and of course we all know the story of the lentils and the garlic and the onions and things that the children of Israel said, oh, I wish we were back there and we had all that good stuff uh, back in Egypt because they got tired of this manna, you know, as they called it. Chickpeas, dates, grapes, melons, pomegranates, fodder for the animals. They grew sesame for oil. You know, sesame is a, about a two-foot high, high herb that flowers, usually pink or white, and has these little capsules of seeds. And they pressed the seeds for, this, for sesame oil, which they would use in, in various preparations and to cook with. And flax. Flax was their principal fiber crop. Flax is about a four-foot high herb that grows annually, too, and uh, produces a fiber. It also produces flax seed, which, when crushed, produces linseed oil. But from the flax, they would produce almost everything they needed fiber for. They could produce rope, they could produce sails, and they could produce the finest linen you have ever heard of or seen. So fine would it be that looking at some of the drawings of the ancient Egyptians and some of the, the models carved, this stuff was almost transparent. It was so fine, so beautiful, that they were able to make out of, the, uh, out of flax. Well, I'm going to have to stop here. The primary animals, we'll, we'll finish with this, water buffalo. And they're still over there. They, that was muscle power. That's what did the agricultural work. Uh, the cattle they raised for meat and for hides, and pigeons, ducks, and geese, which they apparently they ate. Uh, those who have studied this say the chicken probably was introduced probably around the time Israel was in Egypt, 
And it could be that goats and sheep were not well known in Egypt before the Israelis came either because we read the passage of Genesis which said that the Egyptians hated shepherds. So that they were probably not very acceptable before the Israelis lived in the land. And apparently they ate the fish of the Nile River. So this is the world into which the Israelis were introduced. And they would live there for 400 years. That's longer than it's been since Jamestown was founded. 400 years. By that time, they were pretty well absorbed whatever was Egypt. And from that place where they could have thought, huh, we're here forever now. As we read in, in the psalm, uh, in the passage of the Psalms, he brought them out with silver and gold. And among his tribes was not one who stumbled. And Egypt was glad when they departed. And then God spread a cloud for a covering and fire to illumine the night. When God calls out his people, he sends the cloud and he sends the fire. That may be interpreted differently in different lives, but God is there. He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. And he guides our way even when we're in Egypt or in the wilderness or in the promised land. In fact, where was it that Israel really began to go astray was when they got in the promised land. We want to be like the other nations. We want to have a king. And then he started to worship the gods of other nations too. But while they were in persecution in Egypt, the spark of the faith was kept alive. And that's one of the reasons why persecution exists. And we may face it yet in America in a more significant way because that's one means by which the church has been kept alive and the faith has been kept alive. The worst enemy of the church through history has been a total acceptance by the world and apathy sets in and the church just goes, you know, no fire. Well, we'll begin with the first verses of Exodus next week.